much. Yes. Thanks so much. And Godwin, you know I love those keys, man. I, one of these days I'm just going to keep you up the whole time. I'll let you, I'll let you sit down for a little bit, but I'm, one of these times it's just going to be the whole entire time. It's so good to be with you. And it just, last night, did that not just feel so good? Knowing that we're going to the World Series. I mean, that's really what the sermon is about today. Is that God heard my prayer, specifically mine. No, that, it, it was wonderful. What a cool community experience. And it's so good to be with you this morning. Um, so many great things happening in this church and all over the place. And we are in the book of Nehemiah. This story of an underdog people. The threat of being dissolved into the nations, losing their identity, losing their history, losing their sense of solidarity in community, and God betting on the underdogs and saying, no, I am with you, and you will build again, and you will revive and renew again. It's a great story. It's a powerful story. And we've looked at all different Uh, Many different chapters, and today uh, we're going to look at chapter 5 in a few minutes. It's a beautiful passage. I want to start with a question, and it's just sort of like a survey. Like, is there, what is it for you that there's never enough of? Like, what is that thing for you in your life, in your experience, where you're like, there's just never enough of blank? Like, what is there just never enough of? Any thoughts? Anyone have like a thing that pops in your mind immediately? Like, time. How many time? How do you feel time? Oh, man, I have so been there. I remember when I was finishing up my graduate work, I'm getting ready to defend my dissertation. I did not have enough time. I would see people just hanging out in coffee shops, and I want to go, can I rent some of your time? Can I, like, have some of you and, my, and, and put that into my time somehow? It's just there's never, never enough time. What else? What are some other things? Yes? Peace. peace. Shalom. Irene. Peace. Ooh. This all, these are all very deep. I was going to say guacamole. Like, that is the thing. And we go to Chipotle. I'm telling you something. There have been more marital therapy sessions oriented around Chipotle distribution than anything else probably. Right, Bray? Huh? Give me an amen in the front row. Look at this beautiful lady. Goodness gracious. There's just that little cup, right? And like, really? Or like, how about orange juice at a breakfast place? Like, you want a little shot of orange juice? You're like, I pay like six bucks for this? All right. Never enough. I want more. What else? Sleep. <laughs> Look at that. As if I'm cute. Sleep. Yeah, sleep. Like when I, my kids are fighting to go down, right? I don't want to take my nap. I'm like, I wish some giant would come into this house, pick me up, and just put me in bed and say, sleep as long as you want. Ah, oh, how good would that be? We need more of that in our life. That's next week's sermon. What else? Any other fun ones or real ones or anyone? What do you not have enough of? What are you like, there's never enough. Clear direction. Yeah, like, what then should I do? Lord, what would you have me? Give me some clarity. I need more. And you get some clarity. It's like, okay, I need need it even clearer. Get the pixelation even more clear. From one of mine, uh, as you know, those of you that know me, Christmas time. Like, I never have enough Christmas time. Christmas Day at about 10.30 a.m. is the most depressing moment in my calendar year. It's like, well, it's over. I knew it would end. I knew it. I was telling everybody, right? It's just I can never get enough of the music, of the scents, of the, of the commercials. I like 
Christmas commercials like T-Mobile. Bring it on. Show me more commercials with like jingle bells and Santa Clauses and just beautiful Christmas stuff. That's like the most shallow Christmas version. But I like all things Christmas. So I start listening to Christmas music literally in probably May. May? <laughs> My wife asked, does it stop? And it actually doesn't stop. I do listen to it all year round and I never stop. But I let people in on it right around November. I'll start playing it more publicly beyond just my house. So we are talking, there's a question that that will be a theme, a motif of today's exploration. And that is this question, what if there is not enough? What if there's just not enough? What What if I run out? What if there's not enough to go around? What if there's just not enough? As we've explored the last um, several weeks looking through this beautiful passage or this beautiful um, text, we've looked at the preparation, the prayer and preparation that ramped up into this highly unlikely project, this important rebuilding project that, as I said earlier, it was not just a rebuilding of a structure, it was a rebuilding of a people. It was rediscovering their story. It was, it was coming together again after a series of significant traumas. And it was an underdog story and is an underdog story. We looked at the prayer that went into it, the preparation. Bill gave this really beautiful um, message just reminding us that you can have big dreams all you want and you can have passions all you want, but there comes a time where your calendar, right, your pocketbook, your... your uh, Communication with other people on the team has to happen to bring something beautiful about. We talked about uh, the, the leadership that went into this. Todd's given several great messages looking at Nehemiah as a leader. We talked about the shared nature of this project. It was, it was Israelite next to Israelite, neighbor next to neighbor, arm in arm, heart to heart, rebuilding this community great, great um, reminder and and this whole deal of gifts and like we're doing this little gift test. There's so many different kinds of gift tests, so many ways of going about this, but the main headline is this. It's not about one leader or one person or one special group of elite people. It's about everyone coming together. That's the story we looked at. And then last week we saw the first taste of external opposition from outside looking in on the work that Israel was doing and saying, it will not work. You will fail. Todd's illustration has stuck with me. I don't know about you, but all week long, just when he was talking about how he did flip turns in swim, right? So in his swimming team, and if you haven't heard it, listen, it's online. He, he, would, he would do these flip turns, and he had someone in the water behind him, one of his partners on his team, that was kind of, I don't know, being a jerk at the time, I guess, that said to him, you have the worst flip turn I've ever seen, right? And Todd, he mentioned that, what do you think is in my head every time I do a flip turn now? Right? That line, it's how powerful external criticism can be, how dangerous it can be. Today, our text reveals something um, perhaps more subversive, something perhaps more destructive. It's an infection from the inside out of Israel. It's a threat that is internal, threatening the building project, threatening the rebuilding of the community, threatening the renewal of Israel that, that, that has been worked on so diligently. Today we look at something threatening to rot Israel from the inside out. A cancer that is seeking 
to destroy slowly and surely all of the sort of pillars of work they've been doing. And it's, um, it brings us into the shadow of scarcity. It's a topic, you'll hear me say that a lot today. And Tommy gave an amazing sermon months ago on this idea of scarcity and abundance. But the shadow of scarcity, what if there's not enough? What if I run out? What if there's not enough? And so I want to look at um, this profoundly human habit of heart and mind. This profoundly human mindset and heart set. That we're going to see it on display, showcased in Nehemiah chapter 5. It will be crystal clear there. A wonderful presentation of a moment where this internal disease, this social, psychological, spiritual disease threatened all the work that had happened. We're going to see it there, but I also, we're going to step back and the large sort of do a panoramic sweep of the story of the scriptures even and notice where this notion of scarcity, this attitude, this heart of scarcity has threatened so many and brought so many of the darkest moments in human history. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, So let's begin just in Nehemiah chapter 5. You can read along. What I'm going to do is read and then make commentary, a little bit of commentary as we go, a few moments. I'm going to read the first probably two-thirds of this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 5. And this is in in the throes of the project. This is like hard hats and those beeping noises that trucks make, beep, 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 and jackhammers and all that stuff I would think of on a construction site, minus all that stuff because it was ancient Israel. They didn't have it, but it's right in the middle of the project. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during this famine. So not only are they in a very unlikely building project, not only are they coming back from a national uh, trauma that would uh, have reshaped the furniture in almost all of our hearts and minds if we went through it, not only are they a delicate, vulnerable, militarily vulnerable people, but there's a famine in the land. Now, we don't know, many of us, in, in, our, in our experience at least, in the 21st century modern West, we don't really feel the, the, the dark fear of famine, right? It's not something that's, we get drought in, in California. Drought is like our thing in Southern California. We hear about it. But for most of us, it means my shower needs to be a bit shorter, right? You go to an ancient agrarian society and there is not rainfall, which is what Israel depended on for their agriculture. If there's not rain, children will die. You will watch people dying in your family and in the streets. It's a scary thing. So here's the moment of vulnerability. I just want you to see all of it. It's a It's a very scary time in one sense. And so these um, Israelites, these Jews, which is Judean, it means someone from Judea. um, And it says, we are mortgaging our fields to get grain during the famine. Others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So even Israel is economically vulnerable because they are still under the larger arm of Persia. Fun historical fact, um, If you want to explore it further, but for now, that's all I'll say. 
I'll restrain myself. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and although our children are just as good as theirs, we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. They've had to sell or turn their children into indentured servants for the sake of just basic survival. It's either that or death. I mean, that's, that's the choice they were looking at. And they're having to do this. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are, we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards, they belong to others. When I heard, and this is Nehemiah now reflecting, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. You get this picture of Nehemiah. Like, what a, what a, what a leader he was. He reminds me in a lot of ways of my grandpa Harris, who passed away in 2004. An amazing man, big dude, tall, big guy, World War II um, veteran, loved Jesus like crazy, gentle giant, and a giant he was. You come to my house and see this big old picture of him in his uh, sailor uniform right before heading out to the Pacific. Like, this guy was a big dude, but the gentlest giant you'll ever encounter unless he encountered injustice. Not done to him, but if he saw injustice being done from one someone to someone else that was vulnerable and weak, you would see like the giant, you'd see like the bear has awakened. And he's hairy arms like me too, so it kind of is bear-like in that way. And he was just like, no, this will not stand. Right? I, I, I get that sense with Nehemiah here. He's a leader that sees this absolute atro- social and economic atrocity happening. And he goes, I am angry. There's a moment of anger. I love what he does with his anger. We could all learn from it probably in our, in our mo- historical moment right now. I pondered these things in my mind first. Right? So before he goes to action, before he throws out some sort of vitriol or in, uh, confronts, he says, I'm going to stop. I'm angry. I'm going to stop and I'm, I'm going to ponder this for a moment. But then he gets after it. He says, I pondered these charges in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials. So the upper crust, the upper stratum of society that was benefiting from this terrible moment in Israel's life. I pondered in my mind, I called the nobles and officials, I told them, you are charging your own people interest? Like, we're rationing here. We're arm in arm on the wall. We have external enemies. We have economic, financial, we have weather challenges and you're charging interest? I called a large meeting to deal with them. I love that he did that as well. I mean, it's just this moment where he didn't say, let's talk my lawyers, we'll talk to your lawyers, we'll figure something out, come to an agreement we're all happy with. He's like, no, this will not stand, and we will all as a community go right to the problem and talk about this together. So he brings everyone together, and he said, as far back as possible, we have We have bought back, as many as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. So they were um, freeing their Jewish brothers and sisters, pooling their money to get folks out of slavery. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? So you're, you're selling your own people. They kept quiet, that is, these elites, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, Nehemiah continues, what you're doing, it is not right. It is not just, it is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the shame of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let's stop charging interest. 
Give back them their fields immediately, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. And also the interest that you've charged them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised they would do. I also shook out the folds of my robe. He does this sort of, the ancients love these symbolic actions that were kind of metaphors for either an oath or some sort of a, um, yeah, well, here it's an oath. Um, so you think about Pilate washing his hands of the whole matter of arbitrating Jesus's guilt or innocence. I wash my hands of it. So here Nehemiah shakes out his robe and he says, in this way, may God shake out of their houses and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. It's a great Hebrew term that we transliterate into Greek in the New Testament and that we transliterate into English. So this is one of those Hebrew terms that makes its way all the way through. We say it, they said it. Amen. It means I agree. We're in there. Verily, verily, let it be so. What you just said, yes. I'm with you. Amen. Amen. Um, And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. Now, as we just look at the the crime, that was a swell bottle. Sorry for the scare. It's durable. Keeps water cold. Keeps hot beverages hot. Um, As we look at the, the crisis here, it could be so easy for us to say, wow, those are some selfish economic monsters that in a moment of total vulnerability they're exploiting their own kin for the sake of profit who could do such a thing oh disgusting and it's easy to look with an enormous condescension right at this moment and say how could they possibly do that but what I want to suggest today is that when we dig deeper, when, when we excavate a bit further down in this atrocity what we're going to find is a force of atrophy, a force of entropy, a force of destruction that has actually been with human beings as far as we can look back on. This this notion that I've called scarcity, this mindset, this, this heart set of scarcity. And what's interesting here, and I'll talk more about it, the scarcity is not necessarily coming from the understratum, those who were oppressed It's actually coming from the well-to-do in this situation. It's these nobles and elites who are operating with a mindset and hearts that says, this famine isn't good. This famine may last longer than we want. We have to make sure that us and ours are cared for first. Make sure that we're safe. Make sure that we're secure. Make sure that there is enough because there might not be enough. There might not be enough. And so the elites, as they charge this interest, I don't picture them, I don't see them in this passage as just gleefully going like Scrooge McDuck, if you remember DuckTales, right? Money, 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 diving into his diving pool of money. Does anyone remember that? I was a kid in the 90s. So like that would break your neck, I'm pretty sure. But he did it all the time, so I guess it was safe, right? Like I love money. I don't think it's just this love of money. But it's the love of feeling that in this symbol, in this symbolic piece of metal, I have security and and there might be enough if I have enough of this. 
It's a drive. It's deep. And what I want to do right now, I'm not going to go to each of these passages. I just want to, in like three minutes, hopscotch through our, the story of this, in the sacred scriptures, the story of scarcity and just where it rears its ugly head again and again. Let's just go all the way back to the garden in the Genesis account. You have this nahash, this serpent, right? This chaos, this chaotic serpent coming to Eve and saying, hey, Eve, there's something that you're lacking. There's something that you don't have enough of and more could be secured. This tree, this, this provision of wisdom and knowledge, God's not giving you everything. You need to get it. You need to make sure you have it. I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to paraphrase this whole journey we'll be on in the next couple of minutes. And she, she examines her, her situation she examines the tree and says, I got to make sure I have enough. I need to make sure that I'm not lacking what God may not be able to provide me when I need it and reaches out and partakes, right? And you have this first rupture of human and divine relationship that sends shockwaves throughout the rest of human history that poisons the well of humanity, both relationally and vertically. Think back to another great moment in the history of the people of God when you think about the Exodus account, when God brings his people out of the then greatest ancient Near Eastern um, kingdom of Egypt, this empire, unlikely, impossible journey out of slavery, this massive enslaved people. God brings them out with signs and wonders. They see it, they observe it, they note it. The text is very clear about that. And then when they're in the wilderness, they say, we're going to die, we're starving. And God presents them with mahu. Literally, it's manna. We call it manna. It literally means in Hebrew, what is this? Like, what is this? Yeah, try it, eat it. Delicious. And they say, but we want meat, God. There's not enough, we want meat. He's like, all right, I'll give you some quail. I'll give you tons of quails. And come out your nose, there's so much quail. And then they finally see the promised land. And they look at it and they say, we can't take it. We're a beleaguered slave nation. We can't go in and take this land that has strong points and secure security and has a military that far surpasses ours. We can't do it. Let's go back to Egypt where at least we're safe. The siren of scarcity calling them away from what God has for them, calling them to a place of self-protection, a place of protecting their vitals. When you think about judges and the incorporation of other Syrophoenician or Canaanite deities into the worship of the house of Israel, God was very clear in the scriptures. It's like, there is one God, and I don't want you to have any other gods. I don't want you to follow any other gods. I am the only God. I am the one. And yet, if you, again, are relying on crops growing out of the ground or your children starve, it can be very tempting to say, Ah, but what if it would help to have a consort for Yahweh? What it would, wouldn't it help to have another fertility deity in the field? Just in case, just in case, because if those crops don't grow, we die. And so they put the Asherot or the Asherah poles up and, 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 and walk away from their abundant calling by God because they're scared we might die. There might not be enough. One last example, and there's so many, 
When you think about Mark chapter 14 and uh, John, the Gospels chapter 12, there's this story of Jesus right before he's going to be crucified. He's going to go into Jerusalem and be um, uh, killed as, a, um, as an insurrectionist in the Romans' perspective and as a blasphemer from the Jewish elite's perspective, right before he goes, and as a savior from our perspective, let's we not forget. And as he's about to go in, there's this beautiful moment in Beth, Bethany where there's a woman, we're told by John, it's this lady Mary, who she has this jar of perfume of like cost. This is a swell bottle once again. Um, but she has this jar of costly perfume. And in, in antiquity, often you would keep your savings account in commodities. Terrible investment, right? Don't buy a Ferrari now thinking it's going to appreciate. Bad investment. Um, uh, but, but in the antiquity, keeping your savings in precious goods that could be sold when needed in small amounts. She takes this whole thing, which we're told is about a year's wages. So let's say, you know, it makes 70, $75,000 a year. She takes this. And she breaks it over Jesus and anoints him with $75,000 worth of love. $75,000 worth of life security. $75,000 worth of recognizing you're not just going into Jerusalem for Passover. You're going into Jerusalem to be the Passover lamb. She got it, Mark says, when no one else, especially the, the dudes, didn't get it. She got it. And if you look closely at that text, it is in that moment that one Judas Iscariot says, I'm done with this movement. You just allowed a woman to waste that much money on an act, on a shenanigan. I'm out. I can't do it. Right? That siren of scarcity. Will there be enough? We need to hold on to these. We need to be wise with these things. Even a guy like Judas leads him to the, one of the biggest betrayals. There was many factors, of course, in his betrayal, but that was certainly, the text points us to one of them. I don't even have to go into all the texts where Jesus says things like, you can't serve two masters. You, you're going to either love one or hate the other. You can't serve God and money too. Why do you keep going back to that, Jesus? You talk about money like crazy, except for you're not passing the plate trying to raise money for a private jet to get you from Galilee, Nazareth, maybe up to Antioch. No, instead, you're telling people beware of tight-fisted scarcity. That's what I put on that, that point. When we see these elites, we're not seeing something new. We're seeing them living in this land, this wasteland of tight-fisted scarcity. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. And I'm there a lot. And that comes back to me quite a bit. Like in, in, in my house, just our, the way our economic arrangement is, um, I, I'm the one wor I work to, to make money. My wife does all the hard work, which is like seriously loving on our kids and everything else. I have the easiest job in the world comparatively. But given that my responsibility in my mind is to provide, I can't tell you how many times in my head I've walked down the road of what if something happens? We get in an accident. There's a, a hospital bill. I lose my job. And we can't afford it, and I'm homeless. Like, I walk that road in my mind, and I don't, maybe I'm weird. Anyone there with me? Anyone ever do something like that? You kind of go, you catastrophize in your mind, and you're just like, what if there's not enough? What if I run out? And it leads me to say, God, I pull back. 
Now, as the blurb says, I'm not talking about, I'm not condemning wisdom and planning and, and being true. There's tons of scriptures on, on how to be wise with our resources. What I'm talking about is a fear-based posture that says, I have to be careful. There might not be enough. And then when God does this all the time, he kind of taps me in the heart. He goes, hey, James, you see that right over there? You see that need? No, I, I know you see it. Well, what need, God? I can't, I, I gotta keep going. I can't, not right now. No, you see that need. Okay, God, well, I'll pray about it. That's great. My prayers are with you. Be well and fed. And that tap comes again. No, you see that need. You see what's going on there. And you go, all right, Lord. But God, I might run out. There might not be enough. There might not be enough. Sometimes you miss these beautiful opportunities to say yes to something God's calling you to do because you're scared and you're tight-fisted and you're missing out and that's what's happening in these moments of scarcity. It's very common. You see it. It's, it's, a, it's a mentality. You see it in, in, um, with, oftentimes with um, foster children that are coming in from neglect. Um, when we had the girls, one of the first things you notice is the, the food. When it comes time for food, they are just they're cramming their mouth with as much as they possibly can. And if you come near it, they're, just, they're, they're very scared Foster kids will often hide food and steal food. They'll steal these things. Why? Because their mentality is, I know there's not enough. Because I've only been around people that have not provided for me, and there's not been abundance. There's been scarcity. And so I have to protect. And it breaks your heart when you see it. It really does. Because you, you see into this past, like a crystal ball into their past, and realizing that the truth for them has not been abundance. It's been scarcity. And they're hiding in there. And they're living this life. And I'm telling you, if you read the scriptures, the, the metaphor of going from estrangement to adoption, that's the picture of the gospel. We're not just, I went from sinful to forgiven for sin. No, 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 no. That's a tiny piece of it. It's a great piece. But the bigger story is you went from being orphaned to being called son and daughter and beloved one. And so the place that we see the people of God is a place of living in this kind of orphan mentality of there might not be enough. I have to, I have to take care of myself first. And then the opposite, we get this beautiful picture of Nehemiah, and I'll just finish the chapter off. In chapter, uh, in verse 14, he gives his own example. He's not just preaching a great sermon, which is surprisingly easy to do compared with living it out. My Monday morning implementation of the stuff I say or Bill says or Todd says or Matt says or Denise says or Janie says, my implementation or Jazz says is way harder. And here Nehemiah is about to show, like, I'm not just telling you stuff. This is how my lifestyle is and yours needs to be. He says, moreover, verse 14, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, an Egyptian uh, Persian monarch, when I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah until thirty the 32nd year, 12 full years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. So he was given as a um, an ethnarch, as a uh, sort of a client king or client governor that the, that the Persian empire said, you're okay, we'll let you do this project for your people. And because we've given you this right and we we run all the land. You have a right that is yours legally to ask for a percentage of, 
um, goods and money from the people. You could do that. It's your right. It's within your grasp. And he says, I didn't do that. He says, governors before did that. I did not. I refused. Verse 16, instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All my men were assembled there for work. We did not acquire any land. And for the sake of time, I want to uh, read the last portion of verse 18. He says, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. Why? Because the demands were heavy on the people. Then he looks up. And this is the moment that I want all of us to sort of imagine. If I'm going to do an interpretive dance for you, which I'm about to do. No, I'm not. I want you to picture this, this scarcity protecting vital organs, clenched fists, surrounding the stuff. It's not just stuff you like. It's stuff you think you absolutely need or you're going to perish. And it goes from this position to a posture of looking up and going, the God of abundance. The, I serve the God of abundance. It says, I think Psalm 50, the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The God who owns all the real estate. The God of abundance is who I serve. He looks up. And he says, remember me with favor, my God, for I've done these things for these people. He entrusts himself. His theology is really, really on point. And this is one of those moments where it really matters what comes into your mind when I say the word God. What comes into your heart when I say that word. All the facets and shapes and contours of that notion of God and your relationship with God If you look and can say, I serve the God of abundance, the God who turns water into wine, the God who takes seven loaves and feeds 5,000, the God who says, I bring you life and life abundantly. That's what I provide. That's who I am. The, The fountain of life. If that's the God you serve, then you can unclench your fists, look up and say, Lord, I trust in your abundance, and I can share, and I need not exploit, and I need not justify my economic or social or time management lifestyle because I'm scared of not having enough. But I can say, no, I serve the God of abundance. For me, it's time. Finances, I've never been in deep want in my life. I do have to, from time to time, go, Lord, here it is. I trust you. Please, Lord, provide, because I'm, I'm going to share here. Or I'm going to share there, when, as you call me to. But time's the big one. When I'm at Starbucks or I'm uh, in the library or I'm walking across campus and there's a student who's in a really hard place, and I'm like, i got to send that email because I want to go home. Or that chapter is due to the editor by the end of the month, and I'm almost there. i got to finish. And I know God's like, tap, 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 right over there. That's where you need to be. But God, there's no time. That's right. You're the God of abundance. You're the God that can make the sun stand still if need be and can accomplish things yet while I sleep, Lord. Like these are the big faith moments that play out in the little bitty times of our life. Stories of abundance. The last last thing I want to say about this, there's so many places I could go when I think about like we just brought in, as you will meet, he's here today, little Calvin, little two, two-year-old, our new foster little baby. Uh, so him and Franco are buddies now, getting used to each other. 
And every time that there's another child that's coming in, it's always the heart check. You can ask Bray, boy, it gets dark in my head sometimes, <laughs> where I'm just like, what are we doing? This is crazy. It's going to ruin our family, this, that, and the other. Not the idea of a beautiful, amazing kid who's he's amazing. Just this fear. What if the time runs out? What if the money runs out? What if the, the emotional support runs out? What if we're not there? What if there's not people there? What if, what, what if, what if, what if? And it's like, when you turn to the God of abundance and you see the community that worships the God of abundance, which is what we have seen every time in this beautiful family we call the River Church. When we show up and there's a present for Calvin on the door. Someone had got this amazing present for baby Calvin. So his first experience in our home is unwrapping a present and, it's, and, and there's a meal there and it's not about the meals and the presents. Those are awesome. We love those. But it's about knowing that we are in a caravan of love together and if our wagon wheel breaks down, there's a group of people saying, well, if we have to carry your wagon, we're going to carry it because we serve a God of abundance. We're a community of abundance. Hallelujah. Open your fist and live, people. Woo. So thank you. And I want to close with just one last item, which is it's fun. It is so much fun to live in abundance. It's totally fun. We do this thing with our kids. I just want them to feel the fun. Where every Christmas they get a certain budget. And it's like, I want you to blow this on somebody else. Not like one of the family. I want you to find a cause or a need. And I just want want you to blow it. Me and Brady do this for each other. But it's like, I want to do some crazy tip. Like, we're going to leave a $100 tip on a $20 tab because it's Christmas and we're just going to do it. And we're going to sneak out and watch them see it. Like, so much fun. We had this date. And this sounds like a self-brag. I promise you, it's, I, I sit among spiritual giants in this room, okay? So I'm like a tween, tweener at this point in my development spiritually. But I, uh, we went on a date a few weeks ago. And we're on this date. And, like, we saw this crew from the church, like some young, young, young folks with some of their buddies. And they're at Hudson House, and we're like, we're, we're talking to them for a while. All right, see you, going to my date. Me and Bray are talking, and we're like, let's cover their tab, right? So again, I'm not bragging. Don't think that when I see you at a restaurant, I'm going to do the same thing, okay? <laughs> um, and I'm like, let's, let's cover their tab. We just had this fun feeling. Let's just do it. And they were like doing their thing over there. And, and so we tell the waitress, like, hey, could you, do you know those guys over there? Oh, yeah, they come in. Yeah. Could you cover their tab? Just don't tell them. Keep it a secret. Like, okay, cool. And then she goes over there. They leave, and they go, you guys are just punks. What are you thinking? You're crazy. They leave. And then we get our bill, and it's their bill. They had asked the same waitress before they knew they were getting picked up to cover our bill. Okay, so we just bought each other's dinner. And the, the, the server, she's like, what is up with these people? And it's like this fun moment of just saying, like, one of the things that's going on is we serve a God of abundance, so it's fun. And you can actually do things and you're not living paralyzed in fear. And that's the story of Nehemiah chapter 5. And we're going to turn to um, something we do every week, which is communion. And that is just, again, another reminder of abundance. It is the God of all creation providing abundantly to cover a chasm that our own rebellion has dug out. There was not, you could not sin too much for God. You could not do something too bad. Why? Because he's abundant. And he covers with abundant grace. And so the bread representing the body of Christ given for us and the the grape juice representing his blood poured out for us, making a way that we can truly look to the Father and not say, 
distant God being, creator, but we can say, Abba, Father, Dad, can I borrow 20 bucks this week? Dad, I love you. So Lord, thank you for the abundance that you have just lavished in our lives. Oh, the abundance of these beautiful babies that, Lord, have just enriched our lives so much in our family. Thank you for the abundance of compassion, care, and love that has just showered on us and on so many in this church in times of need, in times of joy, in times of transition. We refuse to clench our fists. We refuse to say there's not enough. Lord, we open. We posture our hearts and minds to you and say, Lord, our cup runneth over because you are the God of abundance. Thank you, and as followers of Jesus, we pray, amen. Thank you.